Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. There's Bibles around the room. Um, if you need a Bible, there's a few more. Uh, we can grab them for y'all. Uh, we have been in the book of Mark for the last few weeks. We will be in Mark I'm not sure how long, but we will be in Mark for a while. Uh, Mark is the first gospel written. Uh, It's called a synoptic gospel, meaning that it is connected with Matthew and Luke. Uh, The gospel of John is a different gospel. It's still a gospel, but it isn't considered a synoptic. It's not connected in the same way as uh, Matthew and Luke are. So Mark was the first one written. It was written by a guy named Mark. People believe that it was written by a guy named Mark uh, who was friends with Peter. And so he was able to glean information about Jesus and hear about Jesus and get to know Jesus through the Apostle Peter, through Peter's encounters with Christ. And this was something that was so important for Mark, for his own experience of God through Christ, that Mark knew that other people needed the same opportunities as well. And so he decided to faithfully write down all that Peter had shared with him. He wanted he wanted to know Jesus like Peter knew Jesus. And then he wanted other people to know Jesus now that he, like he knew Jesus because of Peter. And from that moment on, the 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 stories of Jesus, the experience of Christ's spirit through the through through the word of Christ written down was passed on from disciple to disciple to disciple. And today we are disciples of Christ. If you've given your life over to Jesus, you are a disciple or a learner or a student of Jesus Christ. And we then get to share that gospel to each other. We get to to speak out the truth of Jesus to each other. So that's where we've been in Mark. Uh, We're gonna be in Mark chapter two. We're reading verses one to 12. I'm gonna read it through and then I just wanna let it sit in your hearts for a minute. And then uh, if anything comes up from it, anything confusing or convicting or moving or um, anything that's coming up, just go ahead and share that out. So it says in verse 1, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I wasn't at Bible study on on, uh, Thursday, so I know a few of you guys were there. What, What came up from Bible study from this passage? 
Anything that came up during that conversation together? Or anything else that people are kind of sitting in and wondering about? David? The authority. The authority. Okay. What do you mean by that? Like, what came up from that? Um, well, wasn't the previous chapter, um, I'm trying to remember from the previous chapter, like, the theme of authority. Yeah. And then now, you know, Pharisees recognizing, you know, Jesus trying to get them to recognize them. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. We talked about authority a couple of weeks ago, and, and we talked about how the word authority can get lost in translation a little bit, but it just means influence. It means like that Jesus had such major influence over everything that even the the spirits obeyed him. What else? What else is? Uh, what kind of questions come up, or what kind of is there anything that's moving or interesting about this passage before we get into what I feel like God is giving us today? Yeah, Ashley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says that he immediately knew what in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us can be in a room and we can look at people and know in our spirit what you're thinking in your heart sometimes too. Like there's just that facial expression, there's uh, the body movement, the way that we cross our arms, the way that we're sitting, the way that we're not receiving, or the posture that we're taking. Um, there's, a, there's a spirit that we, can, that we can connect with in that way as well. Obviously, Jesus is God, so it's a different level, but I think there's something to be, to be said there. Yeah, Martha, Marta? Well, actually, I came to church the last couple weeks because I was actually talking to my mom. And she was actually ministering to me, and I actually had an experience that I was the sick person, and she was ministering to me in mm. God's um, word and authority. And then the next day, I just kind of felt like a lot, like uplifted, you know? Yeah. Because Good. I was trying to resolve something I can't resolve. Okay. Good. Good. Almost like you were the paralyzed. Yeah. person mm-hmm. and you are being ministered to yeah, yeah. go ahead Melissa I'm loving his four friends yeah his four friends man those guys are legit right seriously yeah Haley um, yeah ever since we had that discussion about authority every reading this book about authority as like a believer the authority we have is a believer in Jesus and one of the things like the words I saw this morning was Stubborn faith, like and I was thinking about that all morning. Not like stubbornness, like blockhead, like in negative sense, but like a real persistency and faith, like like a pit bull, like will growl yeah. something and not let go. Yeah. So I see this in this story, with, you know, this just like a persistency, like a woman with issue of blood, just how she pressed through, and yeah. this man, like his friends, are so determined, they like tore a roof off and lowered him down, and so that to me is just like a really awesome example of like. Yeah. 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 And another word too, like the uh, and the the authority power is another word that kind of goes with that influence that I've been reading about too. So it's it's a fun topic. That's good. How about you, Melissa? I just want to share. I just received a text. The two little busy girls have been. <gasps> oh my gosh! 
Oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for sharing that, Melissa. Melissa's husband, Jeff, does search and rescue with their dog, Elsie, and so he was there last night. So she's very connected with that. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you in your name. We thank you that those girls were found. We, we pray that all who've been involved in this and everybody who's, who, who these girls have touched, Lord, I pray that they will experience your presence and your life in a way that they've never experienced before. May you use this to glorify your name, to bring glory to you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Dang. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Man, I, I think like part of the heaviness that I was feeling this morning was from that. And so, man, God is good. All right, so let's pray and we'll be done. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, so uh, there's a lot that we can get into of this passage. Um, the, the, the reason that I like to read scripture and then open it up to the rest of us is because even though I've taken, I have like the margin and I've taken the time to get into the text and to like be prayerful about where I feel like God is leading our community, like what I need to share to you, every single one of us has a word to bring. Every single one of us connects with God's word and can can influence each other, can have authority through Jesus Christ for each other, has something to bring to the table. And if it's just me or Archie or Jason or Clark or whoever it is standing in, in this seat who's sharing, man, we're missing from the whole body. And that's not okay. So that's why we want to always bring it to this. And at, at the end, man, if there's like, if there's things that have come up, then some usually we're running late, so we don't usually chat about it afterwards, but you can always hang out here and chat and grab somebody, go grab lunch with somebody, come to Bible study on Thursday, debrief it together. Like the body of Christ is meant to be a place of community and a place where we allow that space of questions and, um, and the discomfort of the passage sometime and the encouragement that we receive from each other. Amen? Amen. All right. Okay, so uh, during this time that this was written in the ancient Near East, that first century kind of a life, there was very little scientific research out there about anatomy and physiology, and there was very little when it comes to like medicines and how to cure somebody or help somebody or see somebody get well. Most people believed that fevers or illnesses or diseases or being blind or deaf or paralyzed had to do with an evil spirit or some sort of unclean presence that came from the person not being holy enough or not being in right standing before the gods. That was the belief back then. And even even in the Bible, we read Jesus is, is encountering, I think it's a blind man, and his disciples say, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin that made him blind? This was part of their culture. This is how they understood things. One of the reasons that people still say, God bless you after you sneeze, is because there was that deep belief that when you sneezed, a window opened in your body and your soul for an evil spirit to enter and make you sick. And obviously, that person must not be holy enough or didn't say it quick enough because usually when a sneeze happens, oftentimes they're on their way to get sick anyway. And so there's this belief that, oh, they didn't say God bless you fast enough. Now, superstition is great, whatever. I I love that we're still saying God bless you regardless. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a great practice. Uh, we can say it louder, louder and, and better, and, and I people are able to receive a God bless you when they sneeze. 
they won't be able to receive a God bless you when they're walking down the street for no apparent reason. So keep saying it. But it was believed that sick, the sick, the diseased, the disabled person was that way because of their parents' sin or their own sin. And sin is a big churchy word. It literally just means to miss the mark. So God has set up a space, a way of how humans are supposed to live. It's an archery term. And if we aren't living the way that God has designed us to live, that has to do with caring for others, caring for this earth, caring for ourselves, and in right relationship with God, then we are missing the mark that God has created for us to get. Somehow, if a person was sick, there was a belief that they were suffering from that illness because they were harboring a secretive or unrepentant sin. And if they were still suffering from that disease or sickness or this disabled space in their lives, they would not be able to participate in the temple in any way because it's obvious that they are still a sinner. They couldn't be part of the beloved community. They wouldn't be able to worship God with others. They weren't allowed to participate in sacrifices or they couldn't party during the festivals. They couldn't toast to a good harvest or drink way too much at Purim. They couldn't go to their daughter's wedding. They couldn't go to their brother's baptism. They wouldn't be able to read from the scrolls or find blessing from the priests. They were totally excommunicated because of their obviously worn sin that permeated their body. And the religious leaders weren't keeping the diseased and disabled people out of the temple because the priests hated the sick. It wasn't because of that. They kept them out because they believed they were in sin. They they, they were still in their current state of disease, and so they were somehow unworthy of being in the temple. These are men and women who were outcasted and removed because the holy and religious the righteous, the able-bodied, the healthy folk believed that God wanted the sick folks away from the community so they wouldn't contaminate God's holiness. The religious felt they needed to protect God by excluding the sick. And along came Jesus. And what does Jesus say about the sick? He says, I didn't come for the healthy and able-bodied I came for the sick and marginalized. He came to restore people to a new kind of community. And what do you think that new kind of community would have looked like? What do we read about in Acts? What is this community that Jesus wants to restore the people who have been left out? What does that community look like? Anybody? A lot of misfits. A lot of misfits? Yeah. But did it look like high church with smells and bells and, and making sure that you're wearing the right clothes before you get in? No. Where did it take place? Where did the church take place? Houses. In houses, in people's homes. What did they do there? Did they, did they make sure that you did all the right things before you entered into a home? No. What did they do? They broke bread. They broke bread. They ate together. What else did they do? They, they listened to the, to the disciples' teaching. When they first started moving together, they didn't have any of the Gospels. Mark wasn't written yet. 
all they had was the Old Testament. And so they would hear the stories of who Jesus was from each other, and then they would take all that Jesus represented from what they knew from Jesus, and they would apply it to the Old Testament and be like, where is Jesus on these pages? It's not that they gave the Old Testament away and they're like, that's no longer relevant. Oh, they got into God's word, but they saw it with a new perspective. They saw it through the crucified and risen Christ. They broke bread. They prayed together. They, they read the word. They heard the, the apostles' teaching, and they did life together. They sold the extra property they had that wasn't being used, the, the vacation home in Barbados that they've never even been to, that they got on a whim. All of those things they sold to give to help take care of the body of Christ. And that's what that church looked like. And Jesus started his ministry that we see in Mark. He started this ministry with four young men to follow him as disciples, to learn from him. They went throughout the fishing village of Capernaum where Jesus establishes his presence as like this teacher with great influence and authority in the synagogue. And then they go from there and, and, and Jesus is like, these are the words, these are, this is what I'm saying. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? And they're like, we're paying attention, but now it's gonna be lunchtime and I don't know if I'll remember what you're saying. And Jesus says, pay attention not to all the things that I say, but what I do. And what I do is I'm going to start healing the sick. I'm going to start casting out demons. I'm going to start restoring a people who are so divided. And he does it again and again. He starts healing people left and right. Turn with me to Mark 1. We looked at this uh, last week when Archie taught. Uh, But Mark 1, 40 to 45, I want to read that because I think it sets up this passage that we just read a little bit more. So Jesus is encountering this man. He's, uh, it says that they're all around Galilee at this point, so they're not just in Capernaum. It says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, or down below it says Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer stay and enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So Jesus heals this leper. He commands him to go follow the law of Moses in the religious rules, all the things that you're supposed to do. This is how you make it right, to make himself clean before God and man in the temple in Jerusalem because that's what's expected. And it was a rule, and Jesus knew the rules. But this man doesn't obey Jesus. Instead, he spreads the news about this healing, and Jesus was becoming more than just locally famous at this point. And, and, you know, I'm sure that the 1,500 people who lived in Capernaum knew about him and knew what he was doing, but now it's like spreading far and wide that there's this man who can heal you. And it's not just like he's claiming the healing, he's actually doing it. But Jesus has been healing people all over Galilee. 
why didn't Jesus forgive the sins of the other dozens of people he healed like he did to the paralyzed man? He's healing, 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 but he's not saying your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. He's not doing that until this moment. And I think that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. I think that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets as we see the the early church reading through the laws and the prophets. He came to bring new meaning to them. And I think Jesus set it up so that there was enough desire built up about his fame rising. There was enough curiosity coming up. There was enough excitement for what this, this new guy on the scene might do next. And there was absolutely not a hint of controversy with him. There was nothing attached to Jesus at this point that people would be like, oh, I don't know if I can be associated with him because he is not on the right track. He had been healing and people were wondering what it was. And because there was no controversy, a great crowd came about. They formed out of expectation It was so large and and pushy and needy that there wasn't room to breathe in this house. And and this crowd was full of religious elites. It's full of stay-at-home moms and blue-collar dads, and it's full of marginalized poor people all together in one room because their curiosity and their need overshadowed their differences for one afternoon. Our curiosity and need oftentimes will overshadow our differences for an afternoon. But beyond that, it's really hard. And here we have this very hopeless, non-ambulatory man who who lived in this perpetual state of perceived sin. A man who had given up on himself, probably, at this point, like wondering, wondering what his parents had done that he could possibly deserve this. Like wondering what he had done in his life for some sort of sin that he can't even see anymore. He's like, I don't even know what it is. I know it must be there, but I don't know what it is. What is wrong with me to live in this horrible consequence every day? A man who was uninvited by the church no matter what he did, no matter how many sacrifices he made, no matter how many times he, he washed in the baptismal pools in the temple, like nothing he could do could get rid of the physical reminder of his perpetual sin. But even in his current state, his friends believed he was worthy of meeting Jesus. His friends believed enough for him and this crowded room wouldn't stop them. And they were not about to wait until Jesus was done. I mean, Jesus would have to leave the house sometime. Can't they just like wait outside and wait till he comes out and they'd be like, hey, sorry to bother you, sir, but we got our friend. You have time for him? Like they weren't going to wait in line. They weren't going to take a ticket or make an appointment in a schedule to see like maybe next Tuesday we could come by if it's not a problem for you. Like they were not willing to wait their turn. They weren't going to make an appointment because they desired to see something new. And I could look at this and I'd be like, well, what is the urgency? He's been paralyzed for a long time. What's one more day? Like, what's the problem for one more day? But I wonder if God's spirit was creating an urgency within their hearts to do something radical in that moment. I wonder if they felt a stirring to act 
in the most obscene way by causing damage to somebody else's home. And it makes me think of like when Jesus was in the temple overturning tables, like causing this major disruption of the expected way of doing things. These four friends caused a major disruption. And I wonder what it's like to lower... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Joey. I was just thinking, like, you know, if you know that Jesus is here now, yeah. you know, if Jesus is here in your town right now, then you're going to go down to yeah. see Jesus. Yeah, you're not going to wait. You're not going to wait a minute. Totally. Yeah, and, I like, they're pulling the roof apart. The roof was made out of, like, palm leaves and adobe and just thatched roof kind of a thing. So, I mean, it's hard enough to where they would hold dinner parties up there with like half a dozen people so it could hold the weight of people. This is not just some sort of flimsy sort of ceiling. They They had to come aggressively towards it. It also wasn't, you know, two by fours or anything like that as well, but still it, it takes a lot of manpower to get that thing off in order to, to drop your friends through it. It can't be just like those little like people, hey, Jesus, we're right here. I mean, it's got to be a big amount. And I can imagine them lowering their friend down into this where everybody else is looking up and seeing what's going on, so confused. And I used to look at this passage and wonder of the friend's frustration that Jesus just forgave this guy's sin but didn't heal him in the way they were expecting. But now I look at this passage, and what I see is I bet they stopped breathing when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. I bet they were floored by that. I I, I bet they were wondering, how is this even possible? Do you see our friend? He's still broken. His sin is all over him. You can't heal his sins. He is still broken. His uncleanliness is is running through his body. He can't stand up. He's damaged. He can't be forgiven until he can walk. The consequence of his sin still exists. So what is Jesus talking about? And I think what Jesus was doing was Jesus was like flipping everything around and he needed an audience to see it. He couldn't rely on simple word of mouth by that one person he healed outside the city gates because they came to him. He needed people to see that this was something so radical, so obscene, so unlike the way that it is expected to go. He needed an audience. He needed people to know that God wasn't restoring people to a previous type of community. God was restoring people to a new kind of community that welcomes the broken and declares a priesthood of all believers. That everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has a voice needing to be heard. And it's a community of good news. It's a kingdom community where Jesus was declaring people's sins forgiven in their current state without needing to be fixed by the temple and the priests first. Jesus was bringing like a spiritual healing that wasn't contingent upon the temple's affirmation or a change of circumstances. Jesus was healing people's hearts and then creating a new kind of community out of those healed hearts. And for some people, 
their situations became healed as well. For this man, his situation was healed, right? He experienced the spiritual healing, his sins being forgiven, this this sense of all things made right within, even though his body was still broken. But yet Jesus healed him. But for others, suffering kind of just lives on. But when you read the Bible, what we see is that Jesus never promised health and happiness. Jesus never promised easy roads with like simple answers and successful circumstances. Jesus promised a life of suffering and hardship when we follow him. It is not a life that comes always so easy. It is a life of peace. Is it a life? It's a life of grace, of, of overwhelming love and overwhelming joy. But that doesn't mean that life is easy around us. We don't know what happened to this man whose sins were forgiven, who took up his mat and walked out. We don't know if he was reunited with his family or if he went back to the temple to make sure he did the things that were expected of him or if he began to create a new kind of community out of the healing he had experienced. What I do know is that healing doesn't make life easier necessarily. I'm sure he still struggled. I'm sure there was still suffering around him. This passage that we just read is the start of Jesus' struggles too. Like, life doesn't get easier for Jesus from this point on. The religious folks got super scared about these changes that Jesus was bringing, and they were filled with righteous anger, it says in the book, in, in that passage. It says that, that, that Jesus declared that this man's sins were forgiven, yet only God could forgive sins. The Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah was absolutely clear that only God could forgive sins. And anyone who blasphemies like Jesus just did should be stoned to death. The expectation of what Jesus said and did in that moment, the expectation is death. The wages of what he did was death. The rule what the religious law said, what people understood, how people interpreted the Torah was that Jesus did an unforgivable sin in that moment. Joey. Yeah, but it's like one thing that really stood out to me. Yeah. Like Jesus isn't saying, it doesn't seem to me he's saying like that I, the Messiah, can forgive sins. Like I am here, I'm mm. the Messiah, I can forgive sins. He's saying that like, we, the Son of Man, have authority, like with God, yes. to forgive sins on earth. Yep, yep, totally. But at that point, no one knew that Jesus was God in flesh, and so yeah. the 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 Torah makes it really clear that only God can forgive sins, and the way that you get your sins forgiven is going through the priest and this, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so it was like a really big deal for Jesus to claim that authority outside of the temple. Haley. So he was kind of like in this moment kind of re- revealing himself as God. Yeah. Instead of like maybe before they're like, oh, he's like, a lot of people thought he was like John the Baptist or whatever, like a prophet or one of them. And then as he starts like giving the power to forgive sins, because then as it, it seems like as it goes on, like he says, you know, I'm, I'm here to do the work of my father. Maybe he hadn't said that yet. You know, he's Not just yet. kind of like bringing that in, like, 
God. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, if it was like your friend and they're like, "Hey, I'm God," you'd be like, "Nope, I don't think so. I don't. I don't even know if we can be friends any longer because that's really weird that you just said that." So it's it it was a really big deal that that this was happening in the way that it was. Yeah. But didn't he say not in this passage? But did he say that in the future there'll be many more wonders, many more, yes. more than I have? Yes. So what does he mean by that? So that's a great question. Uh, what he means by that, what I believe he means by that, is not that that we as individuals have more power or authority than Christ did when Christ was on earth. I believe he's talking to the collective whole, that his church as a collective body with the spirit of God dwelling within each individual within the church, collectively, we can do more good on this earth than Jesus could have done by himself. And it's through the spirit of Jesus embedded within each of us that we are bringing this good into this earth. And oftentimes I believe there's many things that make it so we don't do what we've been commissioned to do. We are afraid. We are scared of change. We are scared of... um, of being offensive to somebody or making somebody feel uncomfortable. All of these things make us so we don't actually speak out or live out the gospel of God's redeeming love. Haley. Well, a lot of Christians, like, you know, go to church and do things, you know, like on a service level. It's like if you don't really get to know God and Jesus, like on this intimate level, like this one-on-one personal thing, and you just don't have the belief that it's yeah. real. You know what I mean? Like, we can all hear these things. Like, anybody who's grown up in a Christian home can understand that because we all hear these things. But then there's a certain time where we have to get into it ourselves. Like, we really intimately get to know God. And then as we get full of the life of God, then that overflow is what we have to give others. But it's, like, it's easy to be a Christian and just sit there and, like, you know what I mean? I was a Christian forever and really didn't know if I believed those things. You know what I mean? So it's, like, you got to get it yourself first before you can trust that this God you're getting to know wants to heal and help people, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's good. So I, I think I think what Jesus was doing here in these moments, in this passage that we looked at, is that Jesus was, God was doing a new thing through Jesus. That, that I believe that God slipped into skin as Jesus. God in flesh was forgiving sins. That was making all things right within that paralyzed man and then throughout the world. And God in flesh is announcing a new kind of community in those moments, a, a kingdom community, a heaven on earth kind of community that was built on Jesus as the suffering servant. And this act of forgiveness was actually the beginning of a witch hunt after Jesus. And, and instead of wondering what God might be up to, like, wait, wait, let's pause. Let's look at what happened here. Let's see what this is go- what's going on. Maybe we should look and see what God is up to in this moment of forgiveness and healing. Instead of wondering what God was up to, the religious folks, the ones that were in charge, needed to silence this new thing. And eventually they did. Eventually Jesus was killed for the forgiveness of sins. And they won. For three days they won. <laughs> But God is always up to something. And in this act of redemption, that Jesus was raised from the dead. But in the death of Christ, you guys, this is I think it's so important because so often we're like only focused on the resurrection of Christ. What I love about the Catholic Church is that they have the crucifix with Christ still on it. So we can be reminded of his death. 
However, the cross does not have Christ on it, so we always need to be reminded of his resurrection as well. But in the death of Christ, we too find our death, our death of assurance of, of our good behavior, our assurance of our pride or our perfect answers to the deep theological questions, like that sort of assurance of, of having all the right answers all the time and I cannot learn a single thing from you or from God any longer because I already know that assurance is dead and buried with Christ. We put to death our careers. We put to death our sexuality and our financial packages and our need to be liked and approved of and all these other places that we find our identity first and foremost, we put to death those things with Christ on the cross and then we are raised up again to this new sort of life because we find our resurrection in the assurance of Christ's love and grace for us in our empty and needy space. And then through Christ's resurrection comes this new life and this new type of community and this new identity that began on this forgiveness of our sins, where we are loved in our current state, where we belong and we are all beloved. Now, I think I'm going to end on this. I think one of the most important parts of this passage, okay, there's so many important parts. The forgiveness of sins is like, ah, that that is where we put our... Our, our, we put our flag, absolutely. But the thing that I think is so radical is that community of those four friends. Those four friends that saw that this man was not defined by his sin or his perceived sin, but was defined by, his, by who they knew him to be, regardless of what anybody else thought. Yesterday at Arts Alive, last night, I was, um, we were walking through the little area and, uh, and we went into Los Bagels because they always have really good snacks there. (laughs) And they had art on the wall, and it was kind of this abstract art. It was really lovely. And there's this guy named Ruben who was sitting underneath the art. It was his art. I didn't recognize that at first until he said with his, um, he's in a wheelchair, and he has this this little uh, device because he can't communicate with his words. He can communicate with this device, and the device speaks for him. And he said, this is my art. My name is Ruben. And I looked at him. And when I first walked in, I didn't look at him. I was, I was uncomfortable. I didn't want to stare. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to be uncomfortable. So I just kind of looked at him in the corner of my eye, saw that he was in a wheelchair, but I didn't want to be the weird person that stared at, at, at poor Ruben, who's amazing. And it wasn't until he turned my attention to him and he said, my name is Ruben, this is my art that I acknowledged his presence. Like part of my job and part of my calling and part of every, because you are all pastors in this room and called to be pastors in many regards, uh, part of our job is to acknowledge the worth and the presence of other people. And I was so uncomfortable that I just didn't even look at him until he said, look at me. And then his friend He has this advocate that's with him who speaks on his behalf sometimes. He said, this is my friend Ruben. I get his paintbrushes for him. He tells me what color paint to get. We pick out our canvas together. We go and do this. This is where you can find his artwork. This is where you can watch him painting. If you go on Facebook Live, this is where he paints live sometimes. This is how you can experience all of Ruben. And his friend pointed out his worth and value to me when I couldn't see it on my own. And I think that is the community of faith. 
When we want to not look at somebody, when we are uncomfortable, when we are out of our out of our comfort zone, and 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 when we just feel that sense of like, oh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can get into that situation. I've never been involved in that sort of thing before. What if I say something wrong? What if they know how absolutely un and ill-equipped I am to encounter this person right here? What if they know how totally broken I actually am? The community of faith says this person is worth looking at. This person is embedded with the worth and value of Jesus Christ. This person carries within them the Imago Dei and everything that you thought that you knew about this person is nothing compared to the worth that God has for them. Yeah. And those four friends knew that about that paralyzed man. And Jesus knew it too. So Jesus, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Mark and his diligence to write it down for us that 2,000 years later, we are still so compelled and convicted and encouraged and challenged by this. Jesus, may we never forget every single person's absolute and total worth, that they are your beloved child, that in us, Jesus, in each other, you are well pleased. So we thank you for that. Turn our attention to you as we worship you today, Lord. We love you. We thank you. It is for your glory. We pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.